0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Evan Ratliff. It's Polk Week here, which means that each day we're talking to one of the winners of this year's George Polk Awards for Journalism. Today, I was fortunate to get to talk to Lindsay Adario, who is, to put it simply, one of the greatest photojournalists of this era. Her conflict photography and other work is incredibly acclaimed. It appears in the New York Times, in National Geographic. She also wrote a memoir some years back that I really recommend. Uh, it's called It's What I Do, which recounts some of the harrowing experiences she has been through in her work, some of which come up in this interview. But today we were focused on her photograph that won this year's Polk. It is a devastating photo of civilians in Ukraine killed in a Russian attack. It was on the front page of the New York Times. It went all around the world. It's probably the defining image of the Ukraine war so far. And we talked about how and why it came about, uh, what her thought process was around it and really what it means to take a photo like this. So here's me with Lindsay Adaria. Well, Lindsay, thank you for coming on the podcast and also congratulations on the Polk award.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having
0: me. Before we talk about the photo, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you sort of oriented yourself in the war to begin with, and maybe help people understand everything that goes into ending up in the situation where you took this photo. So when the Russian invasion happens in February of 2022... What is sort of your response as a photographer?
1: So actually the New York Times asked me if I would be willing to go to Ukraine in December. So I think they were, you know, obviously ahead of the curve and just trying to get everyone in line, everyone who would be willing to cover the conflict. And so I entered Ukraine. I flew into Kiev on the 14th of February, 2022. And that was when, you know, Russia already had, I think, 100,000 troops at that point amassed on Ukraine's border, and it was pretty clear they were going to invade, but, you know, everyone thought diplomacy might still work. So when I went in, I headed almost immediately toward eastern Ukraine, where there has been a war since 2014. So I was covering the line of contact and really sort of a lot of the villages where the intensity of artillery shelling and fighting between sort of uh, Ukraine and that Russian occupied territory had picked up, and so when the war started, I was in Severodonetsk, which is in eastern Ukraine, and I was with a few New York Times colleagues, and we kind of had to make a decision. You know, do we stay in the east or do we head back to Kiev? And I was with Tyler Hicks and Tyler's staff, and so. It was really up to Tyler to decide kind of where he wanted to be, and I would be the second person. I would be kind of like wherever he didn't want to be. And so Tyler wanted to stay out east, and so Andrew Kramer and I immediately started driving back to Kiev. It takes, you know, it took almost two days. We drove kind of all night trying to get ourselves back to Kiev. No one really knew what would happen. I mean, it was really chaotic. It was obviously pretty scary because, you know, no one really knew what to expect. I mean, so we made it back to Kiev. Uh, There had been missile strikes on residential buildings that morning when I drove in. I was in a separate car. Andrei Dubchak, who is a Ukrainian journalist and videographer, he and I drove in together, went immediately to the site where there had been a strike that morning, covered that, and then went to the hotel. And basically for, you know, leading up to that photograph, which won the poke, you know, it was covering daily missile strikes, covering Russian troops getting closer and closer to Kiev, It was a lot of uncertainty. I mean, there was a moment where, you know, obviously the New York Times had asked us to make a decision. Do we want to stay or leave? Because, you know, no one really knew how bad it would get. We all thought that there would be airstrikes immediately, that the electricity and water might be cut. So we were taking all these precautions and preparations just in case, you know, we had to go live in an underground parking lot. And really, it was just really intense and scary.
0: And just to step back, because people might not even have a basic understanding, you've covered many, many wars. And when you arrive in Ukraine at all, are you already oriented? Like, Had you worked there before? And in terms of the geography and where you might want to go and a fixer or translators, and do you hook into a network there? Or are you on the ground having to figure things out as you go?
1: So, I mean, the New York Times, you know, it's a real privilege to work, obviously, for the New York Times, because they have usually a great network of local journalists who have covered the region a long time, who are very knowledgeable and help orient me. So I had only been to Ukraine once before for the New York Times magazine in 2015, where I was working in the East on a story about a child who had been displaced by war. And that was the only time I had been there. So I really was not oriented. I mean, I, you know, I was very lucky because the New York Times video department had been working with Andre Dubchuk as a producer and a fixer, and they were leaving because obviously no one knew if the war would actually start, and so they gave his number to the photo desk, and I ended up hiring him, and he has basically been you know, my everything for this war. I mean, he's been my partner in like every aspect of, we talk through everything, you know, our comfort level and danger, where the story is, what we want to cover. And so we both were very interested in heading out east because that's where um, historically there had been the fighting. And so we thought that would be the most interesting place to go. So that's where we went.
0: Mm hmm. And I was looking back at a different story, not the one with this photo, but this story about this teacher that you sort of followed who became a volunteer fighter. She decided she wanted to join the the fight and she she trains and then she goes out to the fight and she comes back and you followed her over a long period of time. And I noted in that story that it said two days after the Russian Russia began its full-scale invasion, you met her. Yeah. And it made me wonder. How are you kind of like gathering the stories that you want to do the sort of immediate, we're going to cover the aftermath of a strike versus people that you want to connect with and maybe do longer pieces about like, how do you keep that all organized while also be operating in a war zone?
1: I mean, I think the fact that I have covered war for two decades has really helped. Like, I know the trends to look for. I know kind of, for me personally, I'm always more interested in sort of more profound, longer term stories, even though my main responsibility is to cover news. So I'm kind of always looking for a combination of those two. So every day, you know, we're sort of waking up, scanning Twitter, scanning sort of all of the Telegram, trying to figure out what is happening. overnight and what the story is but also we knew that there was like a you know a nationwide call to arms and for volunteers to go fight the russians and so everyone was trying to get onto those volunteer bases those naturally were a huge target for the russians and so they were not really letting journalists in but again andre had great contacts managed to get us into this one base. And that's where we saw Yulia and I think five other women standing outside sort of basically waiting to be transferred to the main base to start their volunteer service.
0: And so you kind of talk to some people, clock that and say, hey, can I come back and photograph you somewhere down the line?
1: So in that moment, no. First of all, we had tried to get into, I think, like four or five different places that day, and we were having no luck. And so I was kind of like... I didn't expect us to get the access. So when we got the access, they were already in the van, like about to move to the other base. So I just sort of jumped in the van and started (laughs) photographing it, started talking to her and realized she was crying. I realized like while I was looking through my viewfinder and then I asked her some questions. Andre asked her some questions on video and then... We followed them to the base, but then it was like complete chaos. I mean, there were hundreds of people. It was this extraordinary scene. And so I was shooting kind of everything, you know, because I have to cover as much ground as I can, especially in those early days and weeks of the war where things are unfolding so fast. So I was shooting and I kind of lost Yulia. And I also didn't realize. I mean, I realized it was a strong photo, but you never really know which photos will resonate with people. Mm. And so it wasn't until after I sent it and after it was published that we were like, you know what, we should see if we can follow her a little bit. And Andre found her, I think on Facebook or he found her somehow. And then we reached out to her and asked if we can find her again. And then we just kept reaching out to her basically saying, you know, this will be a long-term thing.
0: I see. I see. And so let's talk about the day when you took this now famous photo. What was it like when you decided to go out?
1: So I think we can back up a little bit. I think um, a lot of the fighting was coming from West, coming from the Western suburbs of Bucha and Irpin. Obviously, now we know what was happening there. We've seen the horrors of Bucha, but we didn't know. We just knew that there was a lot of fighting. And every time we kind of tried to make our way toward there, there were tons of artillery strikes. There was, you know, a lot of fighting around. And so we would kind of go as far as we could, and then, you know, when you reach the bridge, because the Ukrainian military destroyed the bridge to stop the Russian advance, any journalist or photographer who wanted to go further had to park their car, walk across the bridge, and then essentially hitchhike into Bucha and Irpin. Hmm. So I, you know, given my history of, you know, having been kidnapped twice, I've had a lot of close calls, I've been thrown out of a car on a highway, I've been in ambushes, like I was just trying to sort of play it a little safe. And so I was covering the bridge, but I wasn't hitchhiking into European Mbucha. I just didn't feel comfortable. And so I felt really bad about myself. I was like, oh, you know, I'm a horrible photographer. Like I'm not as brave as I used to be and really just beating myself up all the time. And then on a Saturday We didn't even know, but there were those images of all the civilians coming out and sort of filling up underneath the bridge and making their way across the bridge. But we didn't find out about it until it was like late. And so it was too late and too dangerous to go out there. So I talked to Andre and Steve, our security advisor, and I said, let's go out really early tomorrow morning. Let's go out at like seven in the morning. So that was the plan. Um, I was like, you know, it must be safe if everyone's there and there are tons of civilians. So obviously the Russians aren't going to hit a civilian evacuation route. Like it's just full of women and children. And so obviously that was very naive of me, but that was sort of my thinking, you know. And so we went out very early Sunday morning and... I was told by Clarissa Ward, a CNN correspondent who's a really good friend, she said, you know, there's a lot of artillery on the other side of the bridge, but it usually stays on the other side of the bridge. So you'll hear a lot, but it's not targeted at the bridge. And so I was like, "Okay." So we went out and you park your car about 300 meters, I don't know what that is in feet, back from the bridge. And uh, I've lived abroad for 20 years. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and, And then you walk. And so it's like a 10 minute walk toward the bridge. And as we were coming in, it seemed really tense. Like it seemed much more tense than what I was looking at in the photos from the day before. And so we were taking like a side route. We were trying to walk where we always had kind of a wall or some sort of cover in front of us or beside us. But there was was definitely heavy fighting going on very close to the bridge. And so at that point, we got kind of near the bridge. And then we saw like an old woman kind of being helped. Back from the bridge, there was a wall where Territorial defense forces like military, they were helping usher kind of wounded and weak Ukrainians and just putting them there so they can rest and then they would continue on. Mm-hmm. And so we saw a few people being helped over there and we ran across the street and were making photos there and then found a position not next to the soldiers, but kind of in a separate wall. There was almost like a cement cubby, like a checkpoint thing that provided us with a little cover. And we were standing there photographing this sort of steady line of, you know, women, children, elderly, pets, you know, everyone had their animals in in little sort of travel containers. And and they were all just walking across the bridge. And then at some point, very soon after we got there, an artillery round came in, but landed kind of a little bit off in the distance, not very far, maybe a few hundred meters, but it was not like directly at us. And so we kind of pulled back into that little cubby and Steve, our security advisor said, do you want to leave? And I said, no, they, you know, we're fine. We have this little cover area and, and they know that this is all civilians. So they're probably targeting an artillery position of the Ukrainian military in the woods or something.
0: Uh-huh. And your security advisor, Steve, you describe him as an advisor. Like, is it your choice? Like, is there a situation in which he can say, I'm sorry, I know you want to take these photos, but we have to go? Oh,
1: yeah. He. I mean, they do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> they do that all the time. But like, a good security advisor rather than, you know rather than say, let's get out of here the minute it gets dangerous. Obviously, if we cover conflict, like we need to cover it, we'll work with his comfort level and my comfort level. So, you know, ultimately our safety is paramount and he, you know, he's taking that into consideration, but the round was far enough off where it wasn't, neither of us thought that we would be the target, you know? So then the next round came in like in pretty quick succession, like only a few minutes later and landed closer to us. And so at that point, It seemed like they were bracketing onto the bridge and onto where all the civilians were fleeing. And so we dove for cover inside that little kind of cubby Mm -hmm. and then popped back up and immediately another round came in literally like 20, 30 feet from us, like sort of equidistant between us And the family that was killed and the church volunteer that was killed. And that was, you know, it all happened so quickly that my neck was sprayed with gravel and I thought maybe I was hit by shrapnel. So I was asking Andre, like, is my neck bleeding? Am I bleeding? Because I didn't even know if I was like about to bleed out. I was like, it was scary. And he reassured me I was fine. And then we were waiting, Steve ran out immediately because one of the territorial defense soldiers who had been putting himself in front of me and where the blasts were earlier that morning, he disappeared sort of in the dust of the artillery round or mortar round. Hmm. And so he ran out, pulled him to safety and then ran across the street. We couldn't see what was on the other side of the street because it was a little far, but it was really dusty from the round. And so... He ran across the street, told us to stay where we were, and then called for a medic. And then when he gauged, you know, obviously at that point, I knew he was going to pull us out because that position was being targeted. Yeah. But you have to be strategic about when you cross the street because that area was fully open and in view. And so – he told us to come. So we made a run for it. And as we ran across the street, we came upon these bodies. And it took me a moment because I was trying to sort of connect the dots. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but when you've just sort of survived an attack like that, I was still really in shock. And I came upon these bodies and I and I noticed these little puffy boots, like moon boots, of a child. And I sort of was like, "It can't, it can't. They they killed a family." And and there was a man, a woman, and two kids. And so I didn't. I assumed it was a husband and wife and two kids. And I didn't know if they were alive or dead, but they were all laying sort of in similar positions, almost like like, um, spooning, like they had just been knocked down, like knocked over with their suitcases, everything. And, and I had, I, I kind of, I stopped and I, and I had to remind myself like, okay, you need to take a photograph because you just witnessed this, you know, civilians getting killed. And, I, you know, sometimes when I'm in a situation where I'm really scared or I, you know, I've just been through something, I forget to take photos, you know, and that's, I've been, yeah, throughout my career, like I've been in ambushes, whatever. And I, it takes me a minute to kind of come to and to say like, okay, now shoot. And so I remember very specifically saying to myself, like, okay, take photographs. And then I'm also thinking, I have to be respectful because I didn't know if they were alive, if they were dead. And so I kind of worked my way around the family. And then at the same time, it was still like a very dangerous situation. People were still streaming past us trying to make it to safety. I took like a few frames from each angle and then we made a run for it. We had to go back to the car and like two more rounds came in on the way to the car where we had to dive once into the woods and one which is not smart because everything is mined. Mm. And then behind the cement block and then finally made it to the car. Uh when I made it to the car, I I, you know, there's always this moment where I, I don't I there's always this moment where I don't know if my memory is like selective, or if I'm remembering something wrong. And I look at my camera to kind of tell me what I've just witnessed, you know? And so I didn't know if my pictures would be in focus. Like I didn't even remember what I actually shot because I was still really sort of shaken up, but I knew I had to like look and see if I got anything. And so I, I looked at my camera and I could see that they were kind of in focus. And I, I think I first messaged Gaia, the foreign editor, and said, I've just sort of witnessed this horrible thing, and we're okay. And then we went back to the hotel. And at that point, I was like, okay, you know, we're fine. Maybe it wasn't that close. You know, like maybe maybe I just was more scared than I should have been. And immediately when I got to the hotel, I had a message from Clarissa Ward, and she's like, are you okay? I saw, like, that was incredibly close. I saw the footage. And I was like, what footage? Like, oh, no, we're fine. Like, it wasn't so bad. And she was like, where are you? And I said, I'm at the hotel. She's like, I'm coming down to the lobby. And so she came down to the lobby and Andre had posted footage of the blast on Facebook. I didn't even know it. Like I wasn't going to tell my family. I wasn't going to tell my husband. Like I was, Uh. and I looked at the footage and just started crying like really hard and was like, Oh my God, like, wow, that was bad. And then, um, and then I went up to file, you know, I mean, that was,
0: I mean, I remember seeing that when that came out and there's something unusual in it, partly because it's someone taking video and it also has you working and then if you watch the footage, like you can hear your reactions to it. And I think anyone watching that would wonder like how you were able to recompose, to lift the camera, to take those photos as you're trying to escape. And if you go back to that moment, you said you've missed moments before. And can you describe as best you can, what is going through your mind that causes you to say, no, I need to stop. I need to lift this camera and I need to do my job.
1: I mean, I think it was because, uh, you know, because I've missed moments and because I, and I've always regretted them. You know, I've always sort of been mad at myself for, for not stopping long enough to shoot or shoot better pictures or to be braver than I was. And so I think in this moment, there were a few things, like, first of all, I was with a great team, you know, Andre, Steve, and I had a great rapport. We had a great momentum. We trusted each other. We trusted each other's judgment. And so when it happened we were kind of all together and Steve was kind of you know looking out while I was taking pictures not that it helps if a round comes like directly at you but but I think it was just sort of the security in knowing that I had like two very experienced tapped-in colleagues you know and so that helped and then I think um You know, I guess there was a moment, not a moment, but there were a few minutes, you know, leading up to that moment where I was looking through my viewfinder from sort of behind that wall and watching children and women like dragging their children, like pulling their children as fast as they could to a place of relative safety. And I remember looking through the viewfinder being so angry, like so angry that, that children had to endure this, like fear and this suffering, you know, because of what? And so I remember shooting and feeling that kind of anger. And then when the attack happened and coming upon the body of a child and a family, clearly, I... I guess I had to kind of channel that anger and I guess I had to do something with it because I didn't want their death to be in vain. You know, I wanted, I wanted to document the moment because I witnessed the whole moment. That doesn't happen in a war. You know, often we show up 10 minutes late or we show up, you know, right after and we have to kind of piece together what happened. But this was a case where like we were in the actual attack.
0: What was your discussion with your editor like afterwards? Were you worried that they might not run the photos? I mean, these are devastating photos.
1: I actually didn't think they would run the photos at all. Um, I, um, I... You know, it's obviously very sensitive to run photographs of civilians who have been killed, of anyone who has been killed, and it's a family newspaper, and so dead bodies are not, you know, they take publishing those pictures very, very seriously. I've worked as a freelancer for the New York Times for 22 years, so I've certainly had those discussions. And so I think... I sent a message to Gaia and then I also was in touch with Megan Loram, who's the director of photography at the New York Times. I've had a relationship with Megan for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, basically saying like, I think that these Pictures are really important because I was there and because I can tell the backstory. And these are civilians being targeted at a point where Putin is saying he is not targeting civilians. And that is a lie. And also, the day after we had seen all of those images of civilians under that bridge. So it wasn't like no one could say they didn't know that was a civilian evacuation route. Like it it would be impossible. Mm -hmm. So it was a confluence of things, you know, that I felt it was very, very important to publish that photo. But I didn't, you know, I don't know what went on in those discussions. I just know that I felt really strongly about the fact that I wanted the pictures published and big. I wanted it on the front page and I knew it was a difficult photo, but I wanted everyone to see how this family was killed.
0: And when you say you wanted it big and on the front page, what's your sort of level of expectation when a photo like this does get printed?
1: I mean, I do generally know more or less when I have pictures that I feel are strong enough for the front page and tell the day story. And I think this was one of those moments. I think I have also worked for the times long enough to know that, you know sometimes other things happen that day sometimes people think the picture is too graphic sometimes the fact that i've covered war so long skews my own judgment you know and i it's hard for me to separate myself from my experiences because you know i i have suffered a lot of trauma just like my subjects and so i think that's where i really rely on the expertise of the editors at the new york times but you know, I will push if I believe in something because I do want the readers of the New York Times to be as shocked and as sad as I was because that's war and that is the reality of war.
0: You talked about when you were on the Daily talking about this day, you described, you talked about the question of like the permission to photograph this family and later meeting the husband and the family. Can you describe what happened there a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, so... After, I think at the end of that day, Andre and I were really kind of, I don't know, we were just sort of really beaten down and kind of depressed. And we sort of talked about, like, can we find them? Was that the family? Like, can we find anyone related to them? We still didn't know if the man in the photo was the husband. And so Andre managed to find, through Facebook, the fact that a godmother of the children was going to identify the bodies. And he sent her a message saying, we were the journalists who were there in that attack and we're so sorry. And can we come meet you? And she said, yes. And so we went the next morning to the hospital where she was going to the morgue. And we met her and we all basically just cried. I mean, it was like moral injury or like just a trauma or, but in that conversation, I said, I'm so sorry that I'm the person that has taken this photo that you will never forget. And then we asked about you know she said that wasn't the father, the father was visiting his sick mother and is on his way back, and we asked permission to meet him just to basically like pay our respects and to talk to him and to to sort of I don't know, I guess in that moment, I guess we wanted to just say sorry and see if he had any questions and then we went back to the hotel and we were talking with Andrew Kramer, who's the spirit chief and and basically just. I wanted to kind of piece back together their lives. Like who were these people that now the world will just know as dead, you know, like what were their lives like? And so that's when, you know, Andrew thought it would be a good story. And so we kind of just, um, the father agreed to meet with us and he was going to the morgue to identify his family. I didn't have the heart to ask if I could be there. And so he met us at the hotel And Andrew did the whole interview in Russian, so I couldn't understand. Obviously, Andre, was. we were all sitting there. I wasn't getting simultaneous translation. And then at the end, Andrew said, you know, I wanted to talk to him. And so I basically just said, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm the one who took this photograph that of the death of your family. And is there, uh, I hope you're okay. You know, I hope you understand why I felt it was important. And immediately he just said, the world needs to see this photograph and basically thank you. And I don't know, for some reason, it just helped. It helped a lot to get his sort of consent to have his blessing, really, and that he understood kind of the importance of journalism and the importance of, of documenting these crimes, you know, documenting the intentional targeting of civilians.
0: When you think about that importance, how do you keep from despairing over things not changing uh, no photo is going to change the course of the war necessarily. Like that would be too much to ask. But I'm wondering how you sort of hold in your mind the idea that that's the reason to take the photo, that's the importance. But also, every day you might see that that change is not happening.
1: You know, for me, I have to believe that photojournalism and journalism as a whole does change the course of of, of war in the world. I mean, obviously, it's still going on, but I think that. If we weren't there, maybe it would be a lot worse. I mean, look at what obviously the Russians learned from Bucha, right? Because when Herson fell, that evidence of war crimes was not there. It's not to say it didn't happen, but, you know, maybe it gave them pause. You know, maybe it's sort of they start to be a little more aware that their actions have repercussions because there are journalists on the ground to document them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's hard. I mean, I, yeah, I have been doing this for so long and I have witnessed so many horrific things. And, you know, from the Democratic Republic of Congo to Yemen to uh, just over and over wars that things don't change or like the world doesn't care as much as I want them to. And, you know, I can't do anything. All I can do is try and bring those atrocities to people who are in positions of power and hope that they do something with that information.
0: Yeah. I have a question that I don't know if I can phrase in the right way, but I'm going to try. Sure. Which is, having seen a lot of your photographs, there's a sort of way that beauty and suffering coexist in many of these photos, Uh and it's sort of hard to process, and I think that's even true in this photo, although this photo is, I mean, it's just quite hard to, I have it up right now, it's like quite hard to look at for any period of time because you're thinking about the people... Involved, but is it possible for you to think about the aesthetic part of the photograph when it's something this horrific?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like intuitive at this point. You know, when I'm working, I'm factoring in so many so many things as to what goes into my viewfinder, you know, the light source, the composition, the how close I am, what information is in the photo. That's something that I'm thinking about no matter what I'm doing. And so obviously in this instance where, you know, it was very dangerous, we were in shock, I'm shooting, I'm just thinking of like documenting the moment, but I'm sure somewhere in my subconscious, like all of those elements of light and composition are coming in because it's second nature. To me you know it's like I've been doing this so long I think if I have time to compose a photo and even if it's of a horrific topic I will always try to make the most beautiful photograph because I want people to look I want people to ask questions to be engaged to pay attention and often that does mean the intersection of beauty and horror you know so I think it's part of my job to get people to look and pay attention
0: and you've been asked, I'm variation on this question probably 10,000 times in your lifetime, if not more, but... Why do I go back? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to phrase it slightly differently. So it seemed like a different question, but is there a moment when you look back at how close that round was and say, okay, I did capture this moment, so in, obviously it was worth it in some sense, but does it get more difficult to do?
1: I mean, look, I, I should be dead so many times over. I mean, after Libya, you know, I mean, Libya, there was not a moment in the kidnapping in Libya where I thought I would live, you know, Iraq, I was kidnapped for a day, but it was still being held at gunpoint with guns to our heads for, I don't know how many hours. It's just over and over. So I think, there's not a moment where I say, okay, I'm going to quit journalism. You know, I'm going to stop photographing. Yeah. There's just that moment just doesn't happen to me. Like, I'm not, that's not how I function. You know, this is who I am. It's not like a job for me. It's not, I'm not doing this for a paycheck. But I think certainly I have to sort of take pause. I have to sort of think about my, my, you know, how I process things. And that's a very important part of being able to continue doing this work over so many years is just being sort of in touch with myself and what I need. If I need some self care, if I need to just step back a little bit, I think in, in Ukraine, like the irony is, I think I've been playing it very safe. You know, yeah, okay, I've spent a lot of time in Donbass, but I'm not like at zero line like a lot of my colleagues. I'm, you know, maybe a little step back. I don't know what that means, given this is an artillery war and a lot of artillery can fly, you know, I don't know, 40 kilometers. But I feel like I'm playing it safe and I feel like I'm covering a lot of the civilian stuff. But I guess as we see, civilians are just as much a target as combatants. So I'm not sure what that means.
0: Just thinking about your meeting with the husband of this family and then looking at just even the photographs you've just taken from Ukraine, funerals people who have discovered their loved ones who have been killed in brutal ways, being on the close to the front lines, like your life has been filled with a lot of people who have experienced suffering. And I'm wondering to what extent those people sort of populate your life and you, you try to hold them close and keep them in your life, or you try to put them aside because it's just too much.
1: Um, I, you know, I don't think I'm the norm, but I tend to hold people close that I've been through or survived things with, even if I physically wasn't with them, if I have a relation with them. You know, I, I'm i uh, still friends and, and still correspond with the father of a soldier who died In front of me in 2009. uh, He, the father, and I are still in touch. You know, I'm still in touch with some of the victims of sexual violence. We're human beings above and beyond anything else. And for me, I hold relationships and, you know, integrity and dignity above anything else. And so, yes, I think a lot of the work I do is very hard and very painful. And some of the people I've photographed, you know, ultimately have decided they don't like that picture anymore because it brings them too much pain. Mm. And that I understand as well. You know, I, I, it brings me pain. You know, it's it's not, you know, I, I just believe in this work. And I think that we all experience a lot of pain and trauma. And I, I think sometimes that can be channeled into good use.
0: Well, Lindsay, thank you for taking this time to talk to me. And thank you for your work.
1: Sure. Thank you.
0: that's it for today's Polk Award show. We will be back with another one tomorrow. My thanks to Lindsay for taking the time. Her book again is called It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Our show today was edited by Susan Peterson. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks to the Polk Awards for this ongoing partnership. And thank you for listening.